Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN, and today's DevOps Lunch and Learn was about API design. And while it is an important and complex topic, and good APIs are hard to design, and making them long-lasting and scalable is even harder. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about event bus and eventing APIs, and then we talked about RESTful APIs and how RackN has been working to make ours resilient over the long term, and we had a discussion about that too. Uh, these are really important topics, ones that we will keep emerging and evolving, so please tune in to the uh, DevOps agenda and uh, check out what we're doing and join in on the conversation. Thanks. Actually, cert management becomes a, a bigger bigger hassle once the certs expire. So when it comes down mm -hmm. to renewing this, that happened to me. That happened to me with Tectonic, where Tectonic, which was that old um, uh, CoreOS distribution of Kubernetes, um, had a built-in system for renewing certificates, but it was broken. And oh. one day I woke up and my API certs were dead. And it's like, what do you do? Yeah, that, that yeah. Is actually, and this is. Go ahead. Yeah, that's actually one part where um, uh, Rancher or, or specifically RKE is is quite strong. Like, like even if the search expire, it 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 would let you fix it and, and get your cluster back to back running um, within five minutes. If I remember, the way to do it in Tectonic was you you just you had to get into your etcd cluster to dump the keys. And then issue new certificate. I don't remember. I just built a new cluster in the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I had that that issue when I was using Kubeadmin like way before. Like uh, was Kubernetes. It's just a one ten, one twelve, or something like that. That that's way before. Like when when it just started supporting. Uh, oh, I'm talking one one eight. <laughs> yeah. Wait, but 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 hold on. Um, Keith, were you going to ask a question? We're we're about to get yeah, on the agenda, so, but yeah, yeah. Just quickly, the is this a problem because you know you have the running services and the services themselves. Uh, there's, there's, you have to register via the certificate when the service starts. So if it's not, or is this a problem? You know, kind of pre. This is not a CIC CD thing. Is it's. it's once the tickets expire, you're you're kind of screwed, like back in the day with Citrix. Yeah, this is this is like a chicken and the egg problem. If your API server certificate dies, you can't dump your private keys in order to issue new certificates because you can't get to the API oh. server. And early early versions of not even that early for a while, Kubernetes didn't have the idea that you could have two certs at the same time. Um. So you couldn't do a real rotation. You actually had to um, replace and then reset the service. And so if you're depending on the service to, to do that, you're in trouble. Hmm? So the, the the API server itself required a certificate to be validated that you could administer it, but it was the so, same. It was the same. It was the same. Basically, the same cert or the same process that 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 validates the both the nodes in the API ser service itself, the control. Yeah, and if you messed it up, by the way, if you messed up the SSL, the, the certificate process along the way, you could just brick your cluster because you need, to, you need to reissue the API server. You need to reissue the client certs that the nodes use to connect. And you have to issue all that just right or else everything falls apart. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, this is just an experience from, again, Kubernetes 1.8 was last time I had to do this. So it's, yeah. it's still true. It, it, it affects your, your control <laughs> plane. So your pods or your, your containers will continue running. Uh, any established connection will continue running. Uh, but internode communication breaks down because the, the nodes don't recognize each other's certs. Um, Container management, so you, you can't stop or restart your 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 services. Um, so the 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 sneaky thing about this is that you might not notice that your service expire until the next time you try to do maintenance. Hmm. So that would be an interesting topic overall. Is the 
one of the things I haven't thought about, because you said you rebuilt the, you just built a new cluster. And when I think of rebuilding a new cluster for something that's not Kubernetes, how many dependencies I have on kind of that version or the configuration management around that cluster? You know, it's kind of like back in the day when you needed to rename a SQL server. That's the one thing you never, ever, ever wanted to do. And in most of most other infrastructure products, if you need to build a new control plane, it's not really easy to, you know, when you have everything associated with, with governance, whether it's compliance and backup and data sovereignty, all the stuff that goes around controlling the control plane, simply building a new cluster is not an option in a lot of solutions. I think it's these are, these are improved a lot. Really, really serious challenges of of how do you propagate change through a cluster. I mean, we spend a lot of time thinking about it. It's a great it's a great topic. Um, you want it, We can. You want to do that on the tenth, and we can. That might be a good prep. Um, I, I'm yeah, certain I can get somebody from Rackend to Rackend to help lead it, lead on it. I'd like to join that one because that's a really interesting one that and especially if you think about managing multiple clusters and bringing clusters up and down like it's not just a kubernetes problem it's a control plane problem which is a really interesting systems problem this is where the cto thing and me as in devops kind of it's like i was going to say well if you did everything in terraform then you could just spin up a new cluster you know that's all easy but now you start talking about backups, start talking about um, compliance, start talking about all these things. These are things that I thank God don't have to deal with. Well, and Terraform has no concept of atomic actions on on individual systems either. So you you can easily land land in a case where your Terraform cluster has decided that it has to be completely um, reset for what could have been should have been a minor change. And there's, there's yeah, and, yes. <laughs> and I, I think the great thing, and this is again one of those CTO level kind of conversations where the agility in which you can just build another uh, Kubernetes cluster to solve this problem is an option. But once you build kind of your whole operations around Kubernetes, that becomes, and not to pick on Kubernetes, you can insert any technology into it. Uh, as that ecosystem starts to expand, that becomes less and less of an option uh, nope. because you break so many other things down the down the line. And I'm so you know we're we're talking about agendas for for future meetings. I'm happy as always to, to you know twist around our agendas a little bit. Today we were going to talk about API designs, um, but I you know I never want to interrupt a good topic if we've if we've got. If people here want to, would rather talk about the control plane designs around this, um, we can we can twist it around. No, I think I think it's a good future meeting. I'd like, okay. like to you know come prepared. This is kind of ad hoc, and if we're prepared to talk, it's been a while since I've been on. I had a yeah. standing meeting that project that ended, so I can be on a little bit more often. I, I don't want to disrupt the agenda for, you know, our, our agendas, our agendas are sort of loose. So it's, you know, I think we have topics. We, we, we look at things that we want to talk about. We, we put them on the calendar and try and make sure. And, you know, 15 minutes of the meeting is always for conversations like this and finding out what, what's, if, what's going to hold interest. That's why we have a nice long backlog of topics. Um, I'd pull a different one up, but there's too many of them that I, I want to be part of. So I'm, Actually, I want to be part of all of them. It's hard to miss any. <laughs> but, uh, I, but, I'll, but I would happily shift to um, API design. It's I think there's been some good Twitter threads on this, and there's some been some pieces. And uh, you know, I, I'm not sure the simplest way to frame it, except maybe tell stories and talk through what people think are are good choices from an API design perspective. Um, and that, that would be a good, a good starting point. Um, and also talk, tell some more stories about 
maybe what bad designs are and why what's happened with it. Um, and I'm happy to yield the floor. I, I came prepared with stories of, of RackN's migration and process through, you know, what I what I what I'm pretty proud of from an API perspective, but we've we've definitely progressed over time. Um, but I would happily yield the floor if somebody has ideas or principles they want to sort of lay out first. Not my area of expertise, so I'm I'm learning something on this one. So I'll, I'll no. I, I just yeah I, I just uh, talked about. People, uh, somebody really pinged me hard on this yesterday. I think this is why it's important, big picture. I, I described the hotel industry as extremely digital transformation friendly. They, 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 mm. not only uh, been digitally there. Not only have they undergone digital transformation, they're under constant digital transformation. So, and someone said, wait, other than being able to register your key. Uh, before you check in on your phone, how they digitally transformed. I'm like, well, if you think about it, they've had an API for the past almost 30 years that allow uh, web 1.0, web 2.0 for you to get a reservation for a Hilton anywhere in the world. Yeah. What other industry other than airline has allowed that to happen. Like if you try and read, if you try and get an RV park, like when you think about APIs and the impact of being not digitally transformed, try, 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 you know, scheduling 30 RV park stays in, in 90, in 90 days. I, so why, oh my this goodness. is yeah, why if you're a, I'm just, I didn't even thought about booking your booking reservations in advance. So you've got to have, be able to, to have flexibility about what's showing up and where things are going. Yeah. And the, the, the and parks and this very, very not uncommon for you to register a registration re reservation for RV park and have to move once or twice in a seven day span in the same park because the reservation systems are not dynamic Ooh. enough to handle uh, accommodating a vehicle of a certain size, et cetera, et cetera. So the airlines and hotel industries, as much as we complain about it, they really have their stuff together to the point that Expedia and, and all these overlays that use the same backend APIs to access the same data sets in almost real time is quite amazing. And that's, that's, if that's not digital transformation, I don't know what is. I agree. I, I think it's interesting because when you mentioned airlines in Southwest, Southwest a couple of weeks ago, their whole system literally shut down because they had, I think one of the APIs they depend on was out and it had an unknown dependency across, you know, through other systems. And they literally had to ground airplanes because they couldn't provide one of, one of their, their, third-party API vendors was out. Um, totally unrelated, but it makes me think about the Elks. The, the whole reason to join is they run an RV park at every every complex. <laughs> and that's a big Elks? deal. Like, that's a massive deal. Like, if I could count on being able to stay at the Elk Lodge wherever I went, even if it wasn't the best location, like, the, being a member of a small organization like that, and again, we don't want to get too sidetracked, but again, it, it's relate, relatable to the API conversation in the importance of a robust API API design. Right. So, so I wrote I wrote two ahead. topics in the in the chat. One of them is Conway's laws relate to API. So Conway's law is people build software systems that mimic the way they communicate. That is to say, if you have a bunch of teams that are responsible for things, they'll all go and create their own APIs and your and the communications between APIs is going to be not what not not what might be technically best, but based on the people that maintain and build the APIs. So even though two teams might have overlapping responsibilities, they're going to go and build their own APIs 
over, they'll build their own aver, overlapping APIs in the separate systems because that's the way the organization is built as a company. So, that's so the so the importance uh, of having this over this umbrella view of what APIs need to be created, who's responsible for them, and bridging the gap between teams to build them. This is. <clears throat> Okay. No, it's that's like, like critically important. Really Go ahead. That's it. It's, it's, it's like this. This goes back to the whole three schema architecture, where you get conceptual and, and physical and logical. And in, in practice, that is hard to do in any kind of a large organization. Um, it's just everyone has such different views on what this thing means. We we did this at DHL, and what a driver thought this filled meant versus what a, a sorting person thought versus what a business person, just getting consensus across an organization like that turns out to be harder than you would think it would be. So is part of the answer, I mean, because when I've done APIs in the past, one of them is they wander because of, of use cases showing up. But another one is just the idea of nouns versus verbs in your APIs. Meaning, is the API a set of objects that I'm manipulating? And then they have, you know, how do you do actions against them? Or that's it, where RESTful comes in, right? So uh, when you build a RESTful, RESTful API, means, then, yeah. you, then you right. define things. You have nouns and you're, you're verbing on the nouns, right? Which, which are just get, put, I'm a big fan of patch. Delete posts, right? Um, Unless you're event based, and, and then a new developer comes in and throws away your RESTful API because it all becomes WebSockets or product buffers. I, and then there's the then there's the intent based, the 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 implicit things where you where you throw things on a bus and then people can decide to work on those on those events. And you just so something implicitly and things happen, right? Total there different model of APIs. Couple. Yeah. Yeah. So I was actually trying to describe that um, last week, talking about, you know, one is a request response architecture where there's a, a degree of coupling into it and and you know, decoupling within the notion of microservices to be any language. When you get to event-based, it's fully decoupled. There, there's not even an assumption someone's going to actually pick that event up. I haven't seen people do event. Uh, maybe they actually know. I guess a lot of the OpenStack stuff was built where they just put together an event bus and everybody threw everything on the event bus and expected that to be actions. Um, I, I I haven't seen people designing fully evented APIs from that perspective where it's you know you put an event in and then you wait. Usually, I'm seeing events as subscriptions and then you know, still, and then actually having a declarative API where you make a concrete synchronous request response. Uh, I, I have seen examples uh, okay. in, the, in the financial sector. Um, when, you're, when you're dealing with, with payment systems and, and so on, um, it's not necessarily uh, real time that you get to transfer. You, you might uh, emit an event saying, hey, such and such uh, wants to deposit this amount of money. And then two days later, you might get a went back saying money deposit, the balance is now this. Um, it, it's, 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 it's pretty, it's much more what I mean. So the example to get to tease is, is Ticketmaster, right? Which is an, an event-based architecture for their back end, right? How, how do you scale out when I'm gonna have, you know, 500 million people contend for, you know, 80,000 seats. How do you manage that with a REST-based API? <clears throat> doesn't scale, right? So, so that's a complete event-based architecture that makes sense because I can actually have one person ask about, are, are these seats in this row available? All the other basically um, pods or what do you want to call them, containers can learn about that availability. And then when someone books one, they can push that off to another event frame. Yep. Right. So it, it radically removes the workload off of any kind of real time event based architecture. Um, I mean, we do almost everything event based. Yeah. And, and particularly when, when you when you need to secure the or 
when you, when you need to record the, the sequence in which you received the events, um, REST makes it more difficult. So does the, huh. I, I, I understand the, the value of an event-based thing where you have limited, the scale of a ticket master, that problem you just laid out makes perfect sense to me, but it seems like there's the schema in which you're, uh, your events are triggered is that becomes kind of the, 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 the limited scale thing in which you can do, you know, I can't do this against, uh, a schema that has 80,000 different types of, 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 of bolts as such. And then I have, and then that, uh, uh, that bill of material is part of a larger skew, then it becomes a, a much tougher thing to manage. So how do you kind of weigh the pros and cons of when you use event, which allows you to do this many to one mapping versus when you have this many to many relationship for API? Well, explain the problem where you think there's a problem here, right? So I've got some sort of a, a um, a manifest that breaks down into a bazillion different components into it, right? So there's an inherent level of complexity just in that. But but why do you think event-based doesn't play in that world? Well, I guess the the problem is I now now you asked me to that I can't I'm struggling to come up with an actual business <laughs> challenge in which that would exist because I think by the very nature of the complexity of the manifests limits the the physical number of business relationships that you can have so um, you know let's say that you know you have that type of manifest you might only be serving walmart target and some other place the when you think of retailers that would have the demand you know at least in the retail space the demand from the client side to carry that type of event-based system, the business drives to a different solution than exposing that manifest to like the consumers uh, of that thing. That I, I can't think of, I can't really think of a business problem that scales in both ways. Well, and we, we moved to an event-based architecture. Uh, we have you know, a million events come in from, from, from customers, million events, uh, millions of events, and they need to go to a bunch of different backends. And instead of this, this gateway having to send these millions of events to a bunch of servers, they just drop it on the bus and everyone's listening to it. So it kind of just reduces the load across the system. Yeah, and I think the way, you know, I think when you think about the database pieces into it, you know, the event is something got received on the dock, something got placed on the shelf, you know, and, and you know, it, it may simply be that your your database is consuming those events and updating its internal information, right? So, you know, events can be things that basically build up other systems. They don't have to be the ends to the means. Yeah, and as I'm thinking about where I've seen this in real life is, you know, SAP in some event, someone making calls to someone putting something on the event bus, and then uh, mm -hmm. SAP ECC is just picking it up, answering the query, and then getting back. And then uh, that that API request is answered, and then some other system takes on. You know, SAP the SAP ECC instance itself isn't necessarily taking the action; it's answering the query. Uh, putting the results wherever it needs to be, where the request is uh, asked to be placed, and then some process kicking it up from there. So that's how I've seen it in like real life. And there, that, that to your point, eliminates the scale problem huh. to an extent. And specifically yeah. with event buses, you have this issue where it's very easy to broadcast in, broadcast something to the bus and then just assume that anyone that needs to consume that message will do what it needs to do. Things get a lot more complicated when you need to return a response to the original request. 
So how, so someone gets this message, but he actually needs to send something back. So what does he do? Yeah, yeah, no. Why why do you think that's, sorry, Mike, why do you think that's harder? I I mean, it's just another reply, right? Now you have to have some, but now you have, well, if it's a synchronous request, then this, then the the guy that got the request now needs to be listening on the bus for responses that need to be linked to the original request, right? Yeah, but we normally just have a. I mean, we just have a different topic for the replies coming in on that. So I think well, part kind of higher. Guess, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was gonna say. I think the point that's missing in there is is you have no idea if the reply gets dropped someplace along the line. You, you don't have visibility. Um. To the same level you would have had in a REST-based ABI, where you've got kind of this synchronous execution, and, and that's right. kind of the the, the risk of, of using an, an event bus. Uh, that I mean, it once you start using it, it, it it becomes very tempting to just use it for every other communication, and and, it, <laughs> and uh, I mean that. It it becomes a problem when when you when you go into the the CI aspect of it, uh, because it, it, if everything communicates via the event bus, then you when you're doing your integration test, you need to emulate the event bus. Uh, you and uh, so you you can't really just uh, stub it out because then the your components cannot talk to each other anymore. Yeah, yeah I've seen. I've seen that problem from a development process all the time where we needed to basically create a completely different event bus to, and this is not even, you know, <laughs> this is not a CD. this is just test dev, where you have a test dev event bus, and now you got to try and keep the test dev event bus control plane in sync with the production event bus. And on top of that, the process in which you were describing where maybe a REST API would be a little bit more cleaner. The practical problems we ran into uh, was, okay, I, the let's say that the thing was to say, I'm going to query SAP for some data. The SAP ECC instance picks it, picks it off the bus, answers the request by saying, hey, here's the link to the data but the data is hosted on an NFS share and an NFS share goes, gets into locking issues because the event bus and the NFS share file system are two completely different systems that are not talking to each other. And that, and I've created cascading processes that require access to that data set and it's not a database. So we, I've, I've seen like where this can go horribly wrong and I'm not on the application side to fix it. I'm on the IT infrastructure side to accommodate, kind of making NFS work like a database that communicates with a event bus that doesn't. Uh, yeah. To be fair, REST interfaces are, are not probably uh, either. Like when you need to do a, an atomic uh, change to, to do different objects, uh, either you, you need to start creating additional API endpoints for that specific change or you end up saying like oh, let, let, let's just switch to the websockets or graphql or, or something that 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 gives you the the versatility to to encode well, is, uh, that kind of optimicity i, I mean go ahead greg you, you i know you've got thoughts yeah so a couple of things i guess we arrived and working on our api definitions we actually split the topic into three components for an API. One is, what is the contract you're establishing between the caller and the receiver? And what is the transport mechanism you're going to actually use to do that? And then what is the synchronicity requirement around it? Whereas all the things you talked about are kind of merging those conceptually together. And so when we talk about it, we're actually, API is from our perspective, defining what the contractual expectation is between the caller and the responder. And if that's that's kind of the, the data method, is that a noun verb thing, whatever, right? Is it going to be a C-like call? Is it going to be a 
thing like that. Then we move into a transport discussion, right? Are we actually going to do REST API gateways that then dump on an event bus because that's actually how we're going to distribute to scale? Okay, fine, that's fine. If it's going to go through the REST direct to our system, right? Are we distributing across to eventually a consistent database? All those kind of things then become outside of what the contract was. That way we can assign clients and control structures on the front end that handle however that's going to talk and then move that to a back-end decision on how we want to scale. So that way we can do federation or direct scaling, load balancing, those kind of choices. And if that means an event bus, great. If it doesn't, well, fine, right? Uh, and then the whole synchronicity versus asynchronous, right? Are we going to define a job request system? Are we going to get a blocking call to a response? Is that going to be blocking on the event bus side, right? Those decisions then become controlled at that layer. And we try and separate the two. And so a lot of times, the first step is to figure out API. And so when we talk about things like, oh, well, it's really hard to do atomic operations in REST, it's like, well, that's a choice. We chose to define our patch operations as atomic. So we create controls in that that define what that means. But that's all becomes a contractual statement too, because you have to then be able to embed into your API what happens when something fails or presents a retry or those become API considerations as well. Not just at the how we're handling it technically, but also then at the kind of contract definition of if you get a 409, that means you did something that was in compliance with what somebody else did. So when you say I have to do an event that's for like a theater reservation system, I'm like, well, maybe. So I bet our system could handle that load to reserve the seats in the pay theater without an event bus. Now, you could use an event bus, but it doesn't have to. So it's, it's one of those, I, I get different, depending on how I choose and what the contract is and the expectation on the caller's perspective, and even how I'm going to then present that data to the user, right? In the theater reservation case, I may choose to get a set of read-only data that I could do through a RESTful API call and then generate a, a patch request to the theater that represents reserving two seats. And then it could come back and say, nope, those are already reserved because that part was controlled atomically through a, a request system, right? That cared about the correctness of the data. And then that pops back saying, nope, not available, pick again, right? So then I have client design based upon that contract where that may be blocking or not. It's just, that's why it's like, it seems like there's a, what are you trying to achieve with your API? Decide, define what that contract is. Then you kind of step through the next processes of, okay, so what's the expected client? How's it going to drive it? Is that going to turn into web clients or am I making smart fit clients? So they'll pay attention to the event bus. That kind of stuff is where I know we at Rack in when we're designing our data center APIs in between the machines and the server and then between the users and the server. We try and think through those kind of three or four layers to get the API choices that we want to provide. But I'll shut up. <laughs> so, Greg, I, I guess some, that was really great breakdown, an example. And where I'm uniquely interested in this problem set is not necessarily <clears throat> the defining of the API itself, but when you have a collection of APIs and you have to, and, and who is the consumer of these APIs and the governance around those sets of APIs. So, you know, you have uh, service to service level APIs and then you have customer, let's, you know, let's say that, you know, you're exposing a rack end front end reporting database API. So there's, what I expose to the customer, and then there's what you expose from service to service or from business partner to uh, service. Where I've run into where this breaks is in the large enterprise where we'll have a centralized event bus, uh, you know, trip code, for example, and you end up getting a set of bastardized applications and services that are built on 
the event bus, but the entire system isn't taken into account. So a lot of things just break. So I guess the question becomes service definition and catalog. So how do you define, you know, the use cases, the boundaries of a API and how do you surface those capabilities up to those people looking to consume those APIs? So let me ask a question. And so one of the things I often find missing in um, any APIs, event-based or REST-based, and that is any versioning around the actual payloads being transported. I mean, forget the, forget the APIs acting in a coherent fashion, right? How do you know whether you got version one or version two of an object, and how do you interpret that? So uh, that's a really good question. All these are hugely layered things. Um, For us, we define that, define that in the uh, endpoint connection, and then in some of our objects, we actually define version fields into the objects themselves for that control. But in general, we've chosen to take a stance on things like um, objects should have fields that have known defaults. Defaults should default to structure type values that are valid for non-specified. And um, outside of ver API version changes, objects shouldn't remove fields. And so with those kind of sets of rules, we can incrementally add um, values and components to the objects such that they um, operate cleanly. And then through the um, API version definition, if that stuff has to go really crazy, we can define the objects kind of newly in that and then let the um, clients choose their API endpoints in effect if they need to. That was kind of rambly, but I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I did. I, I certainly like the Google API guy. They have um, guidelines about you know how how backwards compatibility goes between API versions. I, I find it tenuous, though, that um, so I understand what you said. I find it tenuous if you don't version the objects being passed back and forth as well, and particularly when you're working with loosely typed languages like Python. How that it's, it's not a question of, it, you know, forget the, the old attribute there, there's some new attribute, it's not ex expecting all of a sudden it's traceback. Um, you know, so I mean, without having, without the ability to introspect on the object that's being passed in and understand how to interpret it, I think it's tough to build. Um, you go back to things I think are missing in APIs, I think object versioning independent of API versioning is missing. Yeah, for we us debated this a lot. Yeah. We, we have that ability to add into our objects if we want to and need to as we move forward. In general, over the past seven years, we haven't needed it. Um, we, on the back end, use a strongly typed system, and the clients in general don't worry about it too much, strangely Go, enough. Golang's the, good uh, about ignoring things that, that are added that it didn't expect. Correct. And so, That's John, why. Go ahead, Rob. I, I, what, what, John? The, 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 any, any, any consumer of an API that blows up when something extra is added to me is is a bad client. Um, it, it, it just it makes the clients really fragile. Um, we did we did add a protection that I I feel like has really stood the test of time. In the core of the system, you can ask it for what we call feature flags. And so you can say, hey, I'm going to talk to the endpoint. I'm going to ask it for which features it's implemented at a sort of a very high level. And that lets you build systems that say, oh, I'm going to make a request. And I, looking at the feature flags, I can make it, I know what behaviors the system is implemented. And I can, I can tune my my responses or my requests based on what what features are available what the really behaviors are available but if if i get back extra 
extra data, an extra field in an object, blowing up on that strikes me as very bad. And it is. Remember, your, your client here, the person making that REST API call against yours may be running Python. Yeah, you don't control both ends. And and the fact you had something new in that they weren't expecting, you know, still has the same same impact. And so I know WebAssembly was on there is one way of potentially mitigating some of that. Um, is a, a strong yeah. I guess the other part of that is to me, the discussion we're having right now is the acknowledgement that people aren't actually writing and following APIs. And what I mean by that is, to me, when you talk about an API, you're actually defining a contractual obligation in some regards between two parties, be that service to service, client to server, whatever, right? And so in that regard, if you're having this problem, then you have a something that is not following the API contract in some way. And so the, the hardline answer is the API endpoint version says it's this. That's the object you pass back and forth or the data stream or whatever. And what we're talking about now is, yeah, 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 but the world is hard and complex and fuzzy. So I'm going to have clients that are on version one and I'm going to have a server that's on version two. And how do I deal with that? And you're saying, well, object inspect introspection. Yeah, that's a path. I agree. That's a way to mitigate and try and address that. And there are times for that for sure. But as I sit here trying to write an XML parser against something that is ever changing because the hardware vendors are changing what their XML spec is every week, um, I find that that's nebulous as well to say, hey, let's write something that introspects itself because that code is not pleasant either. I, I'm I'm not trying to. All, it's just it's an interesting complex side problem, right? Yeah, but I think I think what we're alluding to is so the, the current world is messed up. I think we're alluding to is what should AI <laughs> look like, right? Given the fact the current world doesn't match that state of affairs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, this is, I mean, we, we came out of, right, you know, OpenStack had done micro versioning on their stuff and had this idea that you could go to a new API and ask it for an object in an old API's format. And that, that just makes my head explode from a code complexity and a testing perspective. And, and basically, I, I think we got to a point where we said that, con that is not an enforceable contract, to Greg's point. Right, the enforceable contract is this version of the system will tell you what behaviors we've implemented, and we will not take away fields unless there's some really crazy need for it. And I don't think we've ever taken away a field in the last seven years. Um, we've de we've like depopulated them or said we're, there's no valid data in here anymore, but we've never taken them away, even if, even if they even if they should have died. And arguably, we've done the the truly bad thing, right? In that we haven't versioned our API. But it's also the case that, for the most part, our clients will function against more recent servers. Yeah. So our our latest UX would would run successfully if we let it against five year old APIs. Right, but I'd still say some of the stuff you guys are talking about, it were kind of codified into the Kubernetes API um, design spec, right? So, you know, guarantees. I mean, part of it is you can't just change everything all the time. You have to have some agreement when you do any APIs as to what a version means, what it means for backwards compatibility, and what the consumer of that API should expect based on the version of that API. I, I, I think they did a good job in, in creating that document. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, some of that's, I think, a benefit of Golang as the back end, because there's things that Golang on both sides of that um, gives you. We, I, mean, I, I think we've we've benefited from the way Golang handles JSON from an API perspective. Yeah, just give me generics, please, please. Oh, amen, please. <laughs> one, I one, like, this have my code base because of it being boilerplate crap. This helps to, to to clarify the question that I 
X early because it was a bit of a jumble mess. The the world is messy yeah. as a result. I, I, I now better understand the challenge of writing an API. What the reality is, and this is just one of the ways that the world is messy, is that I'll get someone consuming a Racken API and, you know, and <clears throat> Rob, most of you, Rob and Greg, most of your customers, the, you, you have an ecosystem that, you know, you're pretty responsive to your customers. You're, you're the size of your company, the people actively using your APIs, you probably know most of them. Mm-hmm. What happens at my level, which is completely invisible to me, is that we build some process. Uh, let's say it's, uh, you know, some data center automation based on some customization that someone did based on APIs. The guy leaves that you guys worked with closely, and I'm sure you've dealt with this, and some downstream dependency breaks, similar to the Southwest Airlines thing that happened. Enterprises in general, it's been my experience in general, do a horrible job at this low-level API dependency. So when, I think, the question is, like, what, if anything, have you guys had to change in your API development to help protect your business? Because at the end of the day, mm. if uh, when, when, when we do our RCA and we say the reason why the thing broke is because the dependency on Rackin broke. And the guy that did rack in left 16 months ago. We are not replacing them. Let's go for a different product. So has that impacted your business decisions or your technical decisions in API design and publishing at all? Um, <laughs> because these are the inadvertent while, things no, no, that no. happen. While, while, Greg, while Greg thinks about it for a second, I will tell you, we we are like literally an API shim in the middle of everything. And so, right, those problems that you're seeing are literally daily problems for us, right? From dealing with, you know, BIOS and API, you know, um, out-of-band management and Redfish and IPMI and, you know, whatever the uh, InfoBlocks API is throwing at us or what, you know, it's, that's, we're, we're, we're strictly in the middle of that. And that's, that's, is a defensive component of what we have to design. I tell you one thing that was surprising this weekend. I was working on doing a, a auth zero integration into it. And you talk about what makes good APIs and it kind of goes to Keith's point. Um, you know, their response code data and integration back into their, their backend logging stuff. I've never seen anything that was as well done to help diagnose a problem. You, you threw back an error. You, you basically gave me a link into the logging system. The logging system had great detail into it. I don't care if the guy left 18 months ago. I could have figured that one out. Yeah, that in all honesty is one of the areas that I think we can improve on. And we're getting actually driven there to, in some cases. Like there's things in like Amazon's API that some people hate and others are looking better at. And so there's we have requests to maximize uh, retry and discovery and failure isolation in the process through certain things. So we're getting asked that way. We have like what uh, John was describing, um, various API trace capabilities that we've injected that match kind of like what Auth0 has so that you can like say, I'm doing this API call, what's the trace path for it? You can get logging associated with that particular query through the system. Um, so there's things we've done like that in response to what we've seen or what customers have mentioned in other APIs to say, hey, the API is good, but it'd be great if you add this kind of thing on top of it or be able to thread this thing through it. So we're trying to drive some of those or you know, respond to those too. Because we don't know. I mean, we're trying to do the best we can too. And there's lots of good ideas out there about the APIs and stuff. So it's just finding the time to do that. Um, from a protection perspective, 
our problem hasn't necessarily been at the API level. It's more been the complexity of our object model that tends to drive them sideways instead of the APIs themselves. But that's a kind of different discussion. But an occupational hazard given what you guys are doing. Well, somewhat. I, I think there's an element of truth with that for sure. But and I, you know, I suspect it's no different than just like as you were mentioning with your kind of reservation example. Okay, those can be modeled crazy, or your servers can be modeled crazy. It's kind of each domain can choose to have their own scoping issues. But anyway, um, I don't know. Rob may have wandered off. I'm still here, but I was going to hand it off to. I I do have to drop, but Greg, if you can hang out for a couple minutes and and. If, if y'all want to keep going, that's fine with me. Yeah, I have a few minutes. I can stay. Okay. There's more to talk uh, about. But. Cool. I'm going to drop off, and if y'all keep going, um, I, I, I'll catch it up on the recording. So, love to hear it. So, I don't know if that helped you keep it on, but. <laughs> No, that, that that helps a lot. It actually, it's it's extremely practical in John's example of, of how you guys help mitigate some of the challenges. Because this this is a rope from a talent perspective. This is this area specifically, data center infrastructure automation is a rotating door. There's you know if you can get somebody for two years, that's awesome. You've gotten a lot. But onboarding someone else new and the eight months that it takes them to get up to speed and then the same time they're also getting job offers on top of the fact that, you know, I just got them in, in house is a real live problem and a risk to rack in. Yeah, totally. Though in some regards, right, I think of an, an existing request we have, which I think mirrors something that John was mentioning in like the event bus kind of setup is even with our RESTful APIs, which we think of as often synchronous, the problem is as you're trying to do high volume, high um, accuracy setups, you even have to start worrying about failures in the connection paths between clients and even the first order endpoints, right? So in your event bus system, you may have a client that then calls into the front end of your event bus and then drops something on the event bus and then that goes through. Well, for our RESTful APIs, we have to worry about did the network connection or TCP connection between the RESTful server and the RESTful client fail? And was that before or after the response was generated? Was that during the response generation, right? Those kind of problems all get manifested kind of equally in how did we define the contract? What did we decide was the data model we're going to use? And so like one of the requests we have right now is, can you guys put a monotonically increasing request ID that tracks, um, you know, hash kind of thing to track request calls so that we can know if a request has already been instantiated, but the response died in transit. Yeah, and the crazy thing about your solution in the space you're working in, an actual, an actual API request may actually break that, may actually break the the, the API, uh, whether it's a event bus or whatever. So, you know, right, well, I, can make, I can compose a change that actually, you know, breaks the control plane. Well, or at least challenges what it thinks is going on, right? Hopefully, yeah. you hopefully it's designed in such a way it won't break it. But, but in even in like the theater case, right, where you're dumping it onto an event bus. Okay, did the failure occur when the message was coming back through the event bus, right? And the 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 item was reserved, and so when the customer hits do it again, right, because he wasn't patient or whatever, did that go through the system? How did that get responded back? Was that request ID tracked in the outgoing versus the coming back, right? There's all sorts of, 
things to do that are part of the contract definition that potentially make your life easier on handling the failures in the path. And then did you design those? Because then that helps dealing with your turnover and your availability, right? And then the other problem we've found, like when using other people's APIs and sadly even ourselves is how well was that contract documented, right? So that when the new guy comes in to replace the old guy that set it up or wrote it or whatever, is it easy enough to consume and figure out? And that's been... I mean, I think there's two things that popped up in that last one that I don't know are API design, but I think, you know, when you talk about um, adding, you know, uh, sequentially increasing IDs into it, they think about trying to basically figure out where in the request flow something broke. I mean, that's what service meshes are for, right? That's the orchestration layer that handles that component of things. I don't think you want that in the API. Right, that that gives you visibility in your quest routing flow, gives you traceability into it. So I, I would have detracted those from the API conversation as to something that should be handled in a different layer. And and this example may be specific to our genre, right? And equivalent to Amazon's, but the the problem becomes in things like I want to create a virtual machine. I don't want to create two. I want to create one. And if I ask for the API again to create that machine, I want it to say, yep, you already asked me that. Here it is. So how do you do that? And the way Amazon chooses to do it is the client generates a unique ID that then the server can cache for a period of time to say, okay, I asked you for this. I'm the caller of this. And then when the serve, the client comes back around and asks and says, give me a machine, it failed in process or you never answered or whatever, depending on where it failed in the process, the server at least has information that it can then say, oh, I know you, never mind, you already asked for that, you apparently didn't get my answer, here's my answer. And that's where it's like, you're right, it's not necessarily a monotonically increasing number, but it's an identifier that's defined in the API to facilitate those error handling conditions that occur across the whole chain, regardless of whether it's a direct synchronous, you know, restful single client to server call, or if it were passing through a whole service mesh, right? Um, because at some point, the service mesh may or may not know the context of the callers, right? And the, the, the date on top. So it's kind of a, it may be a unique case, but that's what we're I having. Think, I think it's handled, but that's a different conversation. I think that it does what you need it to do in, in solving that AWS problem, but that's a, a, a deep in the, the weeds type of conversation. <laughs> so, um, okay. yeah, I, it's actually one of the things I found weird is I was doing some S3 stuff over the last couple of weeks. And, and it's interesting, the last time the S3 API was revved was 2006. Hmm. How's that for stable? <laughs> what, what pisses me off is when I do a post, they still return a 200 instead of a 201. Okay, see, <laughs> that's, that's people that should be slapped. Well, I, I would have thought so too, but we're doing stuff like with the webhook implementations on post or returning 200. Is that right or is that wrong? Yeah, no, I, I, I get you. Um, there, yeah, I don't know how to directly answer that one in the sense that I know what we've chosen to do and we've tried to be cleaning it up and being more consistent and we've done a lot better. But yeah, no, I... For so ours, one, we've chosen to, quote, stylistically describe ourselves as a uh, stateless asynchronous API, right? Or a synchronous API, which you could build synchronous or asynchronous on top of it. But when we start from that position, then we kind of say, well, that follows this verb response pattern. And therefore, we're going to return 201s on posts or 204s or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't think this solves any acute problems, by the way. I think there's good conventions and practices you can apply to doing APIs, but it doesn't solve the problem of having a big corporation with 5,000 solos and each person doing yeah. their own. <laughs> That's right. That's right. 
No, well, but this definitely helps me understand this. I, I've never looked into APIs at this level. And this really does help me understand from a someone who designs APIs what their thought process and challenges are. And then as someone who has to kind of wrangle the cats and well, deal with the well, outputs, definitely. this really helps. My my experience comes from dealing with the other side because given our jobs, we often have to deal with both providing an API and then integrating with other people's. And so a lot of the things is if a general consensus pattern is followed, then it makes my life much easier in consuming the API because then I have a general idea of, okay, it looks like they're following this basic pattern. So that means when I do a post, I get a 201 if they created the object already exists, I get back a whatever. If I generate a conflicting state in their object database, I get a 409 if I, right? And if that's generally followed, then that gives me a starting point to like make some assumptions to consume pain faster. And sure, it can get me in trouble, but it lets me at least speed up the process a little bit by making some starting assumptions. Yeah. Um, don't get me wrong. Uh, it, it bites me in the, in the rear sometimes too. <laughs> right. It's like, no, hey, why did you send me a 202? What does that mean? <laughs> Yeah, but as an operator, or as someone who wrangles operators, it actually helps me with architectural governance and, and design and conversations. So as, you know, the enterprise gears towards more to using APIs to manage infrastructure, I have a better set of context to talk about what needs to be documented as part of the design and SOP for consuming APIs. So it's like, okay, yes, all the onus is not on RackIn or AWS or the provider. I have to have a standard, if not standard way of consuming APIs, at least a standard set of documentation of how a team that I manage consumes and utilizes APIs so that when it does break and the person did leave, you know, we're not completely in the dark on how the, to to do our season and recover from, you know, uh, API seeing it, sending more information than it did in the previous re- revision. I, I would definitely keep take a look at the, the Kubernetes. I can I can LinkedIn message you the, the link to it if you get it. I think they've done a good job. Because every Kubernetes API um, not only has the REST API version into it, of course, it's wrapped to a kind, which which is an object that is actually versioning into it. And I think, you know, in terms of API references or guidelines for doing it, I think it's one of the betters, if not the best ones that I've seen. So it's a quick read. Yeah, that would be, I, I think I'll take a look at that because that's, yeah, there's, super, that, again, I, that, I, that applies I, across, you know. It's a, Good design. It's we designed ours kind of in parallel because Kubernetes, our stuff kind of came up at the same time. Um, I wish we had maybe embraced that a little more than we have because we don't have the kind skills in there like that, like they do. But uh, yeah, we we. But I, I highly recommend the it. it is, and then I think the other thing is I say I can I can rate like I think. The Office Zero guys have now become my, my, and it's not a very limited experience set, but, you know, taking what's relatively complex, because, um, you know, the, the whole Office Zero service and how they've got, what is it, Akados acquired them. Um, they did a good job in their API and API documentation to it. And I just thought, you know, when something goes wrong, I used to say GitHub's, you know, messages and bad replies are really well thought out. There's a lot of content and message to help you figure out what was going on. Uh, but the integration and with their logging and tracing and stuff that they did with Auth Zero, I mean, I think that's another really good model. That that you know the API is not done when the post returns two hundred one, right? It, it's got to basically handle the error conditions with enough information for a new user coming in to figure out what's going on, and hopefully integration back into some method to get more details. Um, which we don't think of an API, but if you think about you know how do I solve that problem down the road? When, when, you know, it, it, that person isn't there, right, or on vacation, whatever it is, 
Um, I thought that was a pleasant surprise for me at least. No, agreed. I was going to ask you, John, have you seen people posting uh, like Postman examples or things like that with their APIs? Because we get weird requests, not weird requests, like same requests, but we started building up kind of like a, for instance, ours is a straight web RESTful API. Um, people ask us for like Postman examples to do things that they can then validate, work through, extend, and, and move forward. And, the reason I ask is that's Keith something that we're finding some organizations do is they build up Postman repositories of ways to drive APIs as a way to maintain group knowledge. I'll give you I'll give you two quick pieces of feedback, and then I should probably go work on my stuff. But um, um, I've seen a, a decent chunk of those, and almost all of them are out of date with the current API. Yeah, no, totally. That's that's been our frustration. It's like, well, I, I literally, as working with, um, I'm not normally a front end guy, but I was dealing with some RxJS um, uh, subjects um, over the weekend and that stuff. And what I what I really found worse yet is going to um, slash dot in the tutorials and that kind of stuff. They were like just wrong. I mean, it wasn't like they were outdated. They were absolutely wrong. I mean, so I wasted half a day like trying to follow these examples into it, only to go back and read the core documentation, which is where it should have started. <laughs> and going like, you're not even close to being right. <laughs> and your convoluted example is really off. Yeah, um, no, I, yeah okay. So what we do do um, in, in our CAD is when we... we so our code is really based on code generation for a good chunk of the stuff we do. And so we generate examples and we generate um, Swagger docs out of the code itself. So if you- Yeah, that's, that's what we do too. So it's cool. All right. Yeah. So you compile. Go ahead. Sorry. All right, guys. I need to drop. Good talking. Yep. All right, cool. everyone. Thanks a lot. Super helpful. Right. Thanks, guys. It's interesting. Bye-bye. Wow, API design is hard, um, and it takes a lot of thought. I find conversations like this super important um, because every time you make a design choice, it's a compromise. And these conversations help me understand the compromises that we make as we build our designs and what type of contracts we're going to offer to our users. If you're interested in more conversations like this, please join us at the2030.cloud. This is the place where we're having uh, really serious, important discussions about how things fit together and should work. And we want you to be part of it. Come join us. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently. Because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know, laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.